0: Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, February 19th, 2024, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebek with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska.
1: And I'm Guy Iro, and this week we're talking about the big mouth sleeper, Gobio Morris Dormidor.
0: We're very happy to have Gus Engman back. Gus, you joined us last year to talk about Puerto Rico's Cicidium gobies. And since then, we've been wanting to cover a few more species native to that area, including this fish, the big mouse sleeper. We're also going to cover mountain mullet and American eel, part two. Gus is an assistant professor in the University of Tennessee's Department of Forestry, Wildlife and Fisheries and has spent a good chunk of his life in Puerto Rico. So welcome back. And we're excited to talk with you again.
2: Yep. Thanks for that introduction. I'm excited to be here. You know, you always get asked as a fisheries professor, what's your favorite fish in the world? And I always say big mouth sleeper. If I have to oh. choose one, it is, it's it. Yep.
1: If you're going to present us with, it's your favorite fish, I, w- I want you not necessarily to defend it, but to just give us an explanation.
0: Defend your
2: answer. Oh, yeah. I've been working with this species really since I've been kind of what I would call a fisheries biologist. I started work on amphibious fi- species during my master's degree. So got a long history with them. I just really think they're underappreciated, not well-known, and kind of mysterious. I'm somebody who really likes to see fish just out in the wild snorkeling with them, but I I grew up liking the fish, and and this is one species that you can catch hook and line, so I think that's really cool about it. I'm also real big into kind of top predator species, and this one, at least in, you know, certain island streams, is kind of the top dog. So it's kind of cool.
0: Does the name Big Mouth Sleeper have anything to do with their appearance or behavior? And either way, what does this fish look like?
2: Absolutely. They have a a huge mouth in relation to their body. Rows of teeth in that mouth, a kind of underslung jaw, so that lower jaw will protrude beyond the upper jaw. And they will use that mouth to engulf things that are even longer than their gut. So we'll catch them with Macrobrachium shrimp, chile, the claws sticking out of their mouth because they couldn't (laughs) swallow the whole thing and it's just a big arm sticking out and the sleeper is kind of its behavior they tend to occur on the bottom so this is a dorso ventrally flattened fish they're the sit and wait type predators so the sleeper size, this looks like they're kind of sleeping on the bottom just laying there pretty mottled green brown coloration so pretty cryptic most of the time the larger ones will get some really cool coloration. Sometimes they'll have some like gold spots on the side, gold spots in their fins and some kind of really bright red spots and fin margins when they're breeding. Immediately. What it looks like to me
1: is like someone took a walleye or a sauger and kind of compressed it a little bit, kind of hit it with a mallet, flattened it out, maybe run over it with a rolling pin or something. It does have that, it's got that modeling, it's got the spots on the fins, it's got those two dorsal fins that really, I mean, obviously it's got the rounded tail, the flat head, but other than that, it very much looks like a walleye or a It does.
2: I was going to say that, yeah, it's kind of like the tropical walleye in a way.
0: What are they related to?
2: They're related to gobies, well, other sleepers, so there's a a family, Eleotridae. There's like 126 species or something like that, and then there's an order, the Gobioid order, and so that's includes, you know, all the goby family, which is much bigger, and eliotrids. Yeah. And unlike the gobies, they don't have those fused pelvic fins, um, well, they so they can't. No, that's actually I, I should have pointed that. that out. That's that's what distinguishes a sleeper from a goby. So the mm. pelvic fins aren't fused; they're pretty uh, close to each other, placed. Similarly, you know, right under the pelvic girdle right there, but they're not fused. If you observe them in the water, sometimes it's almost like they're standing on those pelvic fins, kind of like doing a little tripod thing with their caudal fin, again, to be able to kind of shoot out.
1: So you mentioned that these guys are the top predators in some of their streams. How big can they get?
2: Uh, up to like over two kilograms. So that's some like over four pounds and over a foot and a half, almost two feet in length. Really big for that family of Eleotridae, and as well as that whole order they're really one of the biggest of those gobioid fishes so that's very diverse but they're some of the biggest so yeah they they get pretty large something like 500 millimeters half a meter is not too uncommon in, okay. at least in puerto rico streams now again a lot of times they're not going to be that big those are kind of i guess maybe they're a little uncommon like almost a trophy size Big Mouth Sleeper, although that, that classification hasn't been established. The majority of individuals are going to be something like six inches or less, you know. They've got that world record. If you want to see the world record bigmouth Big Mouth Sleeper, you can find it on FishBase. fish base. Where was the world record caught? In Costa Rica. Uh, Costa
1: Rica. Yeah. Um,
2: okay. Like sari Piqui, I think is the name of the river.
1: How many pounds?
0: 4.6. So for comparison, that's like a five-pound weight, if we want to. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. These guys are kind of the top dog. Can you talk about how they fit in the fish community in Puerto Rico? And then a little bit more broadly outside their range as well, but starting with Puerto Rico.
2: In Puerto Rico, in freshwater, they're pretty much one of the top predatory species. So they're gonna be the largest of the native fish. Um, and in those freshwater systems from anywhere above any sort of estuarine influence, they're going to be the kind of top predator species then. And so again, Puerto Rico, all the native species are amphidromous. So we don't have kind of those continental freshwater species, much less species diverse, and in those types of situations, these kind of, you might call them peripheral freshwater habitats, places where you don't have as much species diversity, that's where they're kind of the top predators. So they'll occur in you know, these peripheral type places like blue holes in the Bahamas. Um, they've got a fairly broad range, includes all the Caribbean, up into Florida, Texas, down into Central, and probably even in South America. And so when they're in, Those more continental waters, like in Florida, they tend to be much less abundant, and they're not really the top predators there. Those are peripheral habitats for them. And so in Florida, you might encounter them if you look hard enough, but they're going to be much more rare. Whereas on a tropical island like Puerto Rico, where there aren't other large predatory fish, they tend to be more abundant and common.
0: And what are the other native fishes on Puerto Rico?
2: Yeah, there's three species total of Eleotrids. So we've got the big mouth sleeper, a small-scaled spiny cheek sleeper, and the fat sleeper. And then we've got uh, three species of sisidium goby. We just call them Sirajo goby collectively, a river goby, American eel, and mountain mullet. Those are the ones that we consider the native freshwater fish species. There's many introduced species as well. North American sort of like largemouth bass and and sunfishes, as well as a variety of aquarium species that come from different parts of the world. Sometimes we've got some estuarine species that'll kind of make their way up. So big mouth sleeper will cross paths with things like common snook as well. So yeah.
0: In terms of the life cycle of this fish, would you be able to kind of just run us through a typical life of a big mouth sleeper and like what habitats they're using and how that cycle completes itself?
2: Yeah, to, to break down the amphidromous life history, amphidromous fish live and do most of their adult growth in freshwater ecosystems. So freshwater generally streams, and they do not migrate to the ocean to spawn. They do their spawning up in the freshwater, and they have um, eggs that hatch pretty quickly, and the, the larvae float downstream to at least the estuary or the ocean. And then after a larval period, of around a month or so, then they're going to return from the ocean or estuary as post larvae. They're very small, clear, and undergo a a metamorphosis to an animal that lives more is more bottom oriented and start moving upstream. Now, um, with sarahogobi, they kind of make these mass migrations and they make these runs. And sarahogobi like to get way upstream. Big mouth sleeper, you see a lot of juveniles in that estuarine environment, in those lower rivers. And I think they like to hang out in association with vegetation when they're really young. They're not making this big run where they go way upstream. So they start to hit that fresh water, transition, grow. My thing is they just disperse themselves slowly. And the one study that's been done with adults shows that they're pretty sedentary. They're not necessarily moving all around, although maybe in a big storm, they might get blown Mm -hmm. downstream. And you do find some really big adults right near that interface of brackish water. So I think they're pretty flexible. Um, they might end up as adults in brackish water. Will Smith did a study with auto oh, with microchemistry. The, and Will, showed Smith, that, that,
0: the Will Smith. No.
2: Yeah. Oh, uh, William Everett Smith. Sorry. Um, <laughs> he, uh, yeah. So he showed that some adults of Big mouth sleeper would kind of touch salt water.
1: I, I had a question about just general dispersal, particularly when they're out in the ocean and then these post-larval stages. Do they come back to that same river where they just stay in that one estuary or is there any movement between adjacent rivers? How far are, like river mouths in Puerto yeah. Rico in general?
2: So <laughs> uh, you just brought up a great question really for all amphibious fishes. Is there natal homing? Um, and we really don't know the one study that was done, that I worked on with with Sarajogobi, It really was just using the COI gene. so it's not the best, but it did show there's some at least with Sarajogobi, There's probably some mixing throughout Puerto Rico, and I would expect that there's some of that because as you you guy, the river mouths are not necessarily that far apart, mm-hmm. and historically those river mouths were even connected by these like lowland. Estuarine lagoonish habitats. Like now, we've known a lot more channelization, so that they're pretty distinct from each other. One that continues to be somewhat connected is the Rio Grande de Arecibo and the Rio Grande Manatee have. There's this big sort of lagoon that kind of stretches between them. So you could even have kind of connection that way, but also again, those larvae if they end up all the way out in the ocean. I would imagine they have to be moving between certain river miles. There's no way for these larvae to completely control their movement, and mm-hmm. they're not that far from each other. Sometimes it's just a couple miles yeah. between yeah. river miles. Yeah. Cool.
1: I mean, you look at the overall range of the fish, too. It had to get to Florida somehow. It yeah. had to get to Mexico somehow. It had to get down into the southern yeah. somehow. So at some point there must have been fish that crossed yeah. the saltwater barrier
2: oh absolutely yeah absolutely oh they're definitely they're definitely on the salt water that's a great question is really how much connectivity is there in these populations there's some flexibility in that life history there's one it's called the carite reservoir and that's the reservoir the large reservoir that's the furthest in terms of river miles from the ocean of any reservoir in puerto rico and so when they built that dam somehow there's um self-sustaining population of a big mouth sleepers was maintained there. Mm. So kind of the thinking is that there's some flexibility in that life history. And it just makes sense that those fish that happen to be on the longest river in Puerto Rico at the f- highest point of where a dam was built would likely have some sort of phenotypic plasticity where maybe their larvae aren't going all the way out to the yeah. ocean. They're completing their life cycle in freshwater. And so again, so there's been some work. Nate Batchelor did his thesis studying that population and showed that they got this kind of self-reproducing population. They do when they live alongside largemouth bass. So it's very interesting. There's some populations in natural lakes in Nicaragua as well. They're pretty far from the ocean. So they're not probably doing those migrations. Okay.
1: Little kokanee sleepers.
0: I was just thinking kokanee is cool and fish have that plasticity <laughs> where they can adapt to their environment in that way. That's neat.
2: Yeah.
1: Last time we chatted, we talked about a lot of the habitat changes that have happened to the rivers in Puerto Rico. And I'm curious how that has affected the bigmouth sleeper, both in terms of actually changing the habitat and maybe making room for these non-native species.
2: Yeah. So it's, that's a really interesting question for the bigmouth sleeper because all these fishes are amphibious. So the native fishes need to migrate out to the ocean, generally speaking, to during their larval stages. So dams are not great. In almost all reservoirs, although we can get into the one exception in Portugal, in almost all reservoirs, you're not going to find the Big Mouth Sleeper. So those dams are, are a major loss to their habitat. Big Mouth Sleeper do, if a river's channelized, they tend to become less, much less abundant, but they do very well in, in some of the urbanized streams. As long as the habitat's not too altered, we do find them. In fact, I think we were down there in March. We found a huge one in the Rio Piedras, which is the, oh, wow. the most urbanized river in Puerto Rico. And so they hang on there. And there has been some invasions of amphilophis cyclids that are happening. And we're not really seeing major changes, at least up until now, in bigmouth sleeper abundance or size structure or anything. The Amphalophis cyclids, I think their niche is more overlapping with another native fish. Those was hang in the water column, and they might be overlapping more with the mountain <laughs> mullet.
1: I love the mountain mullet.
0: <laughs> I-, I know on the last episode about the Cycidium gobies, we talked about folks participating in that larval fishery and eating them. Is there like a sport fishery for these in Puerto Rico or are the larvae getting eaten?
2: From what we can tell, they're post are migrating throughout the moon cycle. So they don't have these like pulses where it's all the post larvae migrating at the same time now when people are doing that settee fishery where they're targeting the sarahogobi post larvae they do end up picking up big mouse lever there'd be a tiny portion of the catch okay so probably incidentally people are eating them in that settee fishery especially if the fishers aren't very picky about trying to separate out the sarahogobi now like most of us would look at them and not be able to tell the difference with a experienced a tea fisher probably would be able to tell it something different sport fishing it's not super common for them but people do and they really appreciate eating them as well they actually a great tasting fish yeah. so you know just like walleye like re- you know maybe not just like walleye but a very mild flavor white flesh low fat people who do fish recognize that they're good tasting and, and again you catch them hook and line yeah if you're even if you're fishing lower in the river maybe you're targeting something like snook you might pick up a big mouth sleeper and local people do like to eat them
1: if i were to try to target the big mouse leaper if i ever get to puerto rico be sure that i will try to target one (laughs) how would i go about it
2: do it so a small kind of spoon is a great lure for them just kind of a silvery looking kind of flashy lure in puerto rico rivers and if you're in fresh water you're not allowed to use any. Any sort of natural baits. Mm. Um, there's no recreational fishing license required, but you do need to use artificial lures. So a, a silvery spoon or some of those crankbait type things that are used to, they're supposed to imitate crawfish, like mm. really small crayfish crankbait. Okay. To them, I think it looks like the shrimp. And so both of those work great and just, you know, kind of finding find a deeper hole in a river. And casting there, they're pretty aggressive. And so if you find them, sometimes you'll see them kind of chasing the bait, and sometimes you'll have one hook, and there'll be a second one coming, chasing and biting at oh, the man. you know the lure and stuff. Yeah, if you can kind of get in the stream, you definitely don't need um, you know waders or anything. You got a good pair of chocos. you can get in a stream and just walk it and keep casting with something like a spoon or one of those crankbaits baits until you find some. Yeah. Seen some videos of people catching them,
1: and people who know what they are get really excited <laughs> in the yeah. videos. Hmm. yeah granted i might be looking at a biased sample because the videos i'm seeing are the ones of people who have actually labeled the video as catching a big mouse sleeper and therefore know what they are whereas yeah. there might be other videos out there where people catch them don't know what it is don't label it and it's a weird
0: looking walleye catch it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you caught one of these before hook and line what was the experience like do you have any fun stories absolutely from, or?
2: so caught them hook and line Multiple times, again, I love to fish. So when I'm in Puerto Rico and I have the opportunity, that's probably of the native freshwater fish, the one that I would most commonly catch. Again, I've caught them recreational fishing, the Rio Piedras, which is the river that I grew up near. It's a very urbanized river, but I can go out there with a spoon and, and catch a few. Caught them in the Mameyes River. Is a, is a really good river to, to fish for them that comes out of the El Junco National Forest. You can't fish from the forest, but if you can access the river outside of it, that's a better place to be anyways, because they do tend to be a little larger in the more downstream parts of rivers.
0: So they're kind of down lower part of the river. If you're fishing like in the estuary for them, are you concerned about catching bigger fish? And if so, like what pound test is ideal for these guys?
2: Yeah. So if you're in the estuary, that's a good question. I would be excited to also catch bigger fish. There's a lot of, there's a kind of this good transition part where you might catch, you know, big mouth sleeper, common snook, fat snook, Mm -hmm. even a tarpon, Mm -hmm. smaller tarpon making this way up. So I would use kind of like a medium weight rod, specifically targeting big mouth sleeper, and you're gonna go in freshwater, I'll go pretty light. But yeah, 2030 would be good if you really think you might get a tarpon on there and you want to land it because tarpon, man, they're strong, even when they're Pretty small. They can wear through a line really quick. If you're going freshwater, mostly just, I don't know, like a five, six pound, even if you really want to just target them and you're really going just in freshwater, I go pretty light just because it'll be more fun. They're just like a walleye, right? When you first hit them, they fight pretty strong and then maybe they get a little tired and just come in okay. like a lot yeah. log. Like like
1: <laughs> you mentioned yeah. that you can't fish for them in El Yunque. And I, when I think about fishing on the, in the continental U.S., seeking out national forests is one of the top things that I do because that is public land. It is a good spot to yeah. fish. But you mentioned that, one, you don't need a fishing license, and two, you can't fish for them in the national forest. So I'm just curious what kind of the regulations, the rules, and the fishing culture are like down in Puerto Rico, how they differ from the mainland U.S.
2: Those are great questions. So, yeah, the national forests, if you go to it, it almost gets treated a little bit more like a national park in a way. You see signs there's no fishing at all allowed. And so it is kind of the big chunk of protected land, one of the biggest ones, and certainly the most visited in Puerto Rico. In terms of fishing culture, a couple of great things about fishing in Puerto Rico. You don't need a recreational fishing license yet, although it would be great if they had one, I think, just for their purposes. And also, all waters in Puerto Rico are public. Mm. So, if you're in the water, you're good. So, you can walk a river or stream. And a lot of times you could access, say, by a bridge crossing or something like mm-hmm. that. And then once you're in, and, good to go. and people are pretty aware of that regulation. I've rarely ever run into anybody complaining about you being in a stream or anything like that. They understand that. So, it's great. There's a lot of access. You know? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, if there's not recreational licenses, I'm
1: How is whatever the regulatory body? How do they fund things, and or are they? Do they have many programs that they need to fund?
2: So it is a little different than the states. I think it's maybe applies to all territories that they do still receive. uh, Hopefully, maybe you talk about this in your podcast. The Dingle Johnson Act funds talk uh, occasionally about it. um, Sport fish restoration funds which most states are billed out in proportion to their recreational license sales, mm-hmm. Puerto Rico receives kind of a set chunk of that money. They can utilize those just like states do, but it's not dependent on their license sales mm-hmm. like other states. Um, the Department of Natural and Environmental Resources of Puerto Rico is kind of the, the body that handles that. Yeah. Yeah, Gus sent us some
1: articles and one of my favorites was that one from Mexico where they're talking about (laughs) their little land excursions and I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about this and what you think about whether these fish actually get out and hunt for ants or tarantulas or (laughs) whatever have you.
2: That's an interesting one right? I think it's called on the nocturnal terrestrial habits of a gobioid fish, Big Mouth Sleeper, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Like from nineteen fifty. It's a great example of what it was like to be an ecologist like in the fifties. You could go out, get a paper published by just making some observations and doing open up I think seven stomach contents of Big Mouth Sleeper and mm-hmm. publish that. So the author made these observations, they said that they observed Big Mouth Sleeper coming out of, they said it was in the playas, they call them in Mexico, and, and coming out of the water at night. And he saw there were these lines of ants, and he thought they might be out hunting ants. The stomachs he opened up found no ants, but one tarantula. I just think it's a really interesting article, and like really, really funny, especially at night, you'll see them really shallow. They'll move in pretty shallow to eat something. But I've never seen them get out. out of the water to feed. And when I've seen one say jump out of a bucket onto the ground, they're not that <laughs> agile. <Okay>. Or, so <laughs> I've not, but the article said that all the local people say that's a regular occurrence. So I don't want to discount it for sure or discourage anybody from going out there at night and hoping to see one if you do take a picture record it because again there's you know kind of cool. take your word for it i would totally believe that they would eat a tarantula too i would assume it would be one that fell in this river yeah. got too close but it's really interesting they're pretty voracious predators and there's lots of things that they eat i've seen them eat freshwater crabs other big mouth sleeper one time we electrofished one and it it vomited up one that was, I mean, again, it was all, it was like as long as his entire gut.
1: That talk about coming up in the shallows reminds me, have you ever seen those wells catfish that will hunt the pigeons? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I could see him sort of doing something like that. You know, I just don't see them, the way he described as if they're walking out on land to go eat ants Didn't, doesn't totally add up to me, but hey, uh, I don't want to discount it. <laughs> That'd be a
1: fun one to go out and just try and see if you could see it again assuming yeah. that that river is still free flowing and hasn't been altered too much
0: challenge to our listeners go yeah. and observe that for us we'd love to hear about it
1: yeah i'm sure we have yeah. some fans down in mexico
3: it's time for a minute with maria with me maria dosal calling in from chogyang lands here in dillingham alaska I want to give a huge big kung to Gus for taking the time to talk to us about what it's like to catch fish down in Puerto Rico. As far as my indigenous perspective goes on this episode, I want to give a big shout out to all of the wonderful hot tips he gave us as far as the secrets for catching his fish down in Puerto Rico. The knowledge that he's sharing with us here in this episode is really valuable. And a lot of times you can't really pay for this type of knowledge. So the fact that he's giving it to us for free is so, so valuable and really, really appreciated. If you have the chance and you still have your aunties and your uncles and your elders in your community, go and visit with them and get their hot tips and their secrets for success for finding fish and other valuable insights that they might have. It's really important that we sit down with them and absorb this knowledge while our elders are here, especially with us right now. So take the time, sit down with your elders and your people and learn all that you can and absorb from them while they're still here. So thank you guys for all the hot tips and sharing with us all the wonderful magic that Puerto Rico has to offer and telling us about your passion for the big mouth sleeper.
0: Agasakang! questions are still out there research-wise around these fish what do you think are the most like compelling questions that still need to be answered
2: there's a lot of great ones I think there's still a lot more to be done with characterizing their diet
0: what is kind of their prey breakdown
2: I did a little study that had to do with one of those settee runs and so we sampled some fish in the the Rio Grande Arcebo, some predatory fish kind of both in just the freshwater just above the estuary and down even into the estuary and it, it was pretty varied when there wasn't a settee run going on they ate the epilabasra is a puerto rican freshwater crab uh they eat the shrimps the amphidromous shrimps there's several species of shrimps that they'll eat both the adults and the post larvae and then just other fish i don't think i've ever documented them eating a mountain mullet although again i think mm-hmm. if they had a chance they would certainly do it and then other big mouth sleeper during those settee runs they switch in a pretty good portion of their diet was be like 30 percent of their diet during the run and some invertebrates as well especially when they're smaller they'll eat more invertebrates one that that i'm pretty interested in is would we be able to spawn them in captivity? Because there is the one lake where we have reproducing population and in Puerto Rico, all lakes are by default managed with non-native fish because of that amphidromous life history.
1: Were they using like amphidromous run fish or
2: the ones that were purely the, the kokani uh, yeah. sleepers? If I'm not mistaken, they did not, the stock that they were trying to utilize did not come from the Carite, the reservoir, the kokani oh, okay. ones. Maybe one potential problem was once they got those larvae or post larvae just getting them to feed on the right things. I think it's a hang up a lot of times when people are trying to figure out how to raise fish, especially in those early life stages to to get them to feed on some things. So they could get them to eat rotifers. That might work.
1: Reach out to those guys over across town at CFI. I'm sure they'd be interested. That's what I
2: always say. Yeah, I, I want them to do it. And I, I've told them. It. <laughs> they, they like their darters though. They yeah. like their darters, and I think it'd be so cool to have a native sport fish, and they're like, we're non-games. <laughs> so.
1: Is it officially, de- well, I guess if you have a set number that you're allowed to take each day, a, a bag limit, I guess it counts as a sport fish, but yeah. it doesn't have your trophy classification like you're saying, so maybe you could argue that it's not a sport fish.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely I'd say somewhere in between. It's not, mm. like I said, I mean, there's not a ton of people fishing for them. You know, certain people who like to fish a lot, they know about them, but it's not.
1: So if you're able to get successful propagation, particularly from this reservoir population, would you imagine that could become a stocking program that you'd want to put in Puerto Rico and introduce them into other reservoirs? Or is introducing them into other systems something that you wouldn't want to do?
2: That's a great question. I'm not a fishery manager myself. I'm a scientist. So I'd like to give the management agency the the option to do that.
0: Hindsight's kind of 2020. We were just talking with some bloater folks a few weeks ago, and they're trying to figure out now how to actually propagate these fish and having all kinds of challenges. So, knowing that life history and knowing how to propagate something in case something does happen, it seems like that would be useful, also.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And you'd want to be careful. You want to look at genetic diversity and all that. So,
0: cool. Lots of cool questions. Do you have anything we haven't covered that you want to make sure you say about these fish?
2: We mentioned they're in the blue holes, and I think that's a really cool thing. They've been using this model system to study eco-evolutionary dynamics. So there's these blue holes in the Bahamas, which are basically just like holes in a very porous limestone geology. And what you end up having is fresh water floating on top of saltwater, so just rainwater. And mm-hmm. there's kind of these like holes that collects in there. And so there'll be... I think they're mosquito fish like gambusia and then big mouth sleeper only predator and then there'll be certain locations where there are big mouth sleeper and certain where there aren't and there's been some cool studies by brian langerhans at, at nc state and his students showing how there's changes in the behavior of the prey fish and even the morphology and the presence of this predator so they're kind of this cool model system and also it's really cool again with that dispersal, how do they end up in these blue holes? I think that's really cool on the end up places that that other predatory fish are not.
0: I just wanted Gus to give us a preview into mountain mullet and American eel. We're going to be covering those coming up. What are some just like quick little neat things about those fish to tease our audience with?
2: Okay. Well, the thing that I love about American eel is it's one of the only fish that exists is this giant panmictic population. So a single breeding population that occurs all the way from like Newfoundland down to like Venezuela. And there hadn't been a lot of research on them in the Southern portion of their range. I think Ambar Torres is going to talk about uh, her research on longitudinal distribution of American eel in Puerto Rico, And there's a million reasons why American eel you know, are super cool fish, and I think she'll she'll introduce that. But um, mountain mullet is a it's kind of the only freshwater mullet at least on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. They're really cool fish as well. They they current freshwater. They can kind of jump over small waterfalls, and they'll be there in that Eluganke National Forest and places like that. Really pretty, yellow on the sides, mm-hmm. and so they're kind of the only fish of this. Native Puerto Rican fish assemblage that's commonly swimming up in the water column in the, in the, oh. in the freshwater. And so they're kind of like the tropical uh, brook trout or something like that, even though they're not taxonomically related, but you can fly fish for Same them. And,
1: yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I've caught some in Costa Rica.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's good because they're trickier. I mean, a big mouth sleeper, you don't have to be an expert angler to catch one, but sometimes this mountain bull can be a little bit picky, you know, like you can catch them on fly. But they can sometimes be, they can be a little shy to bite a hook.
1: I'm curious. So in, in your professional opinion, guess, how long do you think it will take before the big mouth sleeper gets its own Wikipedia page?
0: I was what I couldn't find one. I was shocked.
2: (laughs) I didn't know it didn't have one. Oh, there's a
1: very scant one for the genus, and then none of the three in the genus
0: have to prep for this show. I usually go straight to Wikipedia to start, and I was like, What the heck?
2: We gotta get one on deck.
0: (laughs) So, just kind of quick summary why should people care about this fish?
2: Well, like I said, it's the most fun of the native Caribbean freshwater sport fish. They serve. An important ecological role is the top predator in these ecosystems. And I just think they're super cool. They're just really, really interesting and live in the diversity of habitats. So they perform a lot of different ecological roles. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Gus. It was great having you on.
2: All right. Thanks again for having me. This is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Get out there and live with, live from, discover, and enjoy all the fish, especially cool native fish like the big mouse sleeper. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Uro. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of Communications. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.